there is nothing wrong with burning in the dormant season. That's traditionally what we've done, and it gets you great results. It really does. But when you have, you know, management objectives that are more nuanced, you can use fire timing or seasonality to help you better meet some objectives by burning it one time a year versus the other. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and we have another great episode lined up for you guys today. Uh, I know a lot of you really love the the habitat and food plot content and discussions, and and that's what we're uh, going to be focused on, at least for the next couple of episodes. And today specifically, we're going to be talking prescribed fire with Luke Reesup from Mississippi State University. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Luke was actually on the podcast a while back discussing some deer movement research that he's been involved with. Uh, but today we're switching gears and talking growing season burns. Luke breaks down the the purpose of growing season burns, uh, when you would use a growing season burn over a traditional dormant season fire, uh, considerations when burning during the growing season, as well as the results that you can expect uh, to see from these type of burns. So if you're a land manager or, or you're just interested in, in improving your hunting property for deer and other wildlife, hey, be sure to stick around for that conversation. Uh, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Silencer Central. If you've ever considered a silencer to help protect your hearing, which I would highly recommend, uh, be sure to check out the folks at Silencer Central. Uh, and they do more than just sell silencers. They, they'll walk you through the entire process, the permitting process, everything to ensure that you stay on the right side of the law, because that's, that's pretty important. And uh, they've been doing this for over 15 years now. So again, if that's something that interests you, be sure to check those guys out at silencercentral.com. Also this week, the clock is ticking on your chance to win that coveted Kentucky either sex elk tag. Uh, man, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to chase big bull elk in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. And not only does the winner get that that coveted elk tag, uh, but they're also going to get a Savage High Country 300 Win Mag rifle, as well as a full package of Vortex Optics. That, that includes a, a rifle scope, binoculars, a spotting scope, tripod kit, and even a rangefinder. So... Uh, guys, don't let this opportunity at an incredible hunt pass you by while supporting the mission of the National Deer Association. So uh, for more information on that or to get your chances today, go to deerassociation.com slash elk tag. And one more thing to be aware of before we jump on the phone with Luke, our friends over at Meat Eater are planning six events on what they're calling the Working for Wildlife Tour. So this is a really cool concept. These events all take place on public land around the country, and they're calling on you guys, the listeners, to, to get involved and to volunteer to help improve those public lands for wildlife and hunting. And uh, Meat Eater will be partnering with nonprofit conservation organizations for each event, and the NDA will be directly involved with three of the six, uh, including there's going to be one in Idaho in July, one in Mississippi in September, and one in Eastern Kentucky in October. 
So if that's something you're interested in, if you'd like to come out to one of these events and uh, help improve public lands in in that area, uh, be sure to check that out. Again, it's the Working for Wildlife Tour, and uh, you can find more information about that at DeerAssociation.com slash Working for Wildlife. Again, DeerAssociation.com slash Working for Wildlife. Uh, with that, we're going to jump on the phone here with Luke Resup to talk growing season burns. Hey, Luke, welcome back to the Deer Season 365 podcast. I uh, appreciate you carving some time out to once again come back on here, uh, but this time to, to talk a little prescribed fire with us. Yes, sir. I'm always, always glad to talk about fire. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Glad glad we could work this out. And uh, yeah, glad you got your got your voice back so yeah uh, yeah for the for the listeners we we had this scheduled previously and uh yeah luke ran into uh sounds like probably some some allergy issues and uh that led to a lost voice so uh but but we got got, got you on here now and uh yeah we're gonna talk a little prescribed fire i know my wife was very much so enjoying a little bit of peace and quiet around the house for a few days when i couldn't talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, as, as I told you before we jumped on here, yeah, my wife lost her voice a few weeks ago and she is very much the talker and I'm not. So yeah, it was really quiet around our house for, for a week or so there. So. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. clears throat> but yeah, uh, you know, last time you were on here, you discussed some, some really cool deer movement research that, that you've been involved with. And, uh, that, that was episode 26 for anybody who wants to go back and listen to that or hear a little more background on Luke. Uh, but today we're we're switching things up a little. We're going to dive into some prescribed fire discussion, particularly the timing of prescribed burns. Uh, but, but before we get too deep into the subject, can you get us started by just maybe discussing, you know, why as deer hunters and, and land managers, why would we want to burn on our property to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in the in the southeastern U.S. and even, you know, moving up into the Midwest or Appalachia, fire is a very real part of the history of our landscape. So, you know, a lot of our, and especially in the, you know, in the deep south, fire was, you know, occurring on the landscape every few years. If you look back, you know, after the last, if you look back over the last several hundred to thousands of years, Fire was burning across the landscape every, you know, two to 10 years. Depends a lot on, you know, the specific region and the plant community and the fuels and the weather and all that kind of stuff. But the point of the, the point of all that is that our plant and wildlife communities are very fire adapted. Many of them, some aren't, but many are. Um, and so the main, one of the main reasons we use fire is to manage our plant communities, right? So we, a lot of times we talk about using fire to manage wildlife, but in reality, we're using fire to manage plant communities that the wildlife are responding to. So from a deer habitat management perspective, um, we've generally got a couple of objectives when we're putting fire on the ground to manage plant communities for deer. Um, one of them, one of the big ones that we'll talk about today a lot is managing the hardwood midstory. So, you know, in the in the deep south where we got really long growing seasons, we get a lot of rainfall. Trees grow very quickly and succession takes place very rapidly. So, if you don't manage that succession, you know, you can manage it with fire, you can manage it with a bush hog, god forbid, you can manage it with 
goals. You can manage it with a lot of different ways to keep it at bay. But if you don't do something to manage it, you're quickly going to transition from an herbaceous dominated plant community to a woody dominated plant community. So, you know, a lot of times we'll use fire to keep that woody component of the plant community suppressed or at bay and allow the more desirable plants, the forbs, the brambles, the vines, often shade intolerant species. We'll use fire to promote those and keep the woody plants at bay. You know, we also use fire to, you know, reduce fuel loading and uh, create good cover and structure, et cetera. But that's kind of the crux of it. Yeah. And those, those natural fires you referred to that were going on, you know, every say two to 10 years, um, were those from natural causes? Was that, was that lightning strikes or, or was that, you know, man-made fires? Yeah. So both, both certainly, um, lightning strikes were, in in the deep south, peak lightning season is the you know mid summer months of June and July. So when you look back across uh, like records of tree rings and fire scars on trees, um, and even if you just look at you know basic climate history, we see that lightning strikes peak in the mid summer months of June and July. So that's where a lot of the natural quote I'm doing air quotes with my hands the natural fires. Um, came from. But, you know, Native Americans, I would call those natural sources of fire too, because, you know, they were very much an integrated part of our landscape for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And they helped kind of guide the evolutionary trajectory of our plant and wildlife communities. But, you know, so lightning strikes, June, July, August timeframe, Native Americans, they were burning when the conditions were right. So whether that was you know, the February or June or September or December, if the conditions were right and they could use fire to help them meet an objective, they were going to burn. And, you know, they're, they burn for wildlife management like we do. They burn to clear agricultural fields. They burn to, you know, as war tactics, smoke signaling, um, those kind of things. And, you know, think about Native Americans on the landscape thousands of years ago, they did not have D6 dozers to push in fire breaks. So they were burning and oftentimes the fires were just going until the fuel conditions, uh, till the fire went out because the fuel conditions weren't right or it hit a river or a cliff or whatever. So, you know, that's a more unconstrained way of burning and, you know, fires would catch a snag and the main fire would go out, but that snag would smolder for, you know, a week, two, a month at a time, and then it would get really dry and the wind would start blowing and that snag would launch an ember, right? Maybe a hundred yards or whatever. And then all of a sudden you'd have another fire starting. And today, just the way that we manage and suppress fires, we just don't have that kind of thing. And our landscape, you know, we got cities and roads and all sorts of stuff that are very good fire breaks. Yeah. Yeah. And as a former uh, DNR employee that did a lot of prescribed burns, uh, yeah, I've I've witnessed the uh, the snag throwing embers in uh, yeah in a in a in a bad sense <laughs> across yeah. a fire break. So yeah, I, I can attest to to that. They can definitely uh, start back up from from a smoldering sta- uh, snag. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, as you kind of referred to earlier or mentioned earlier, um, you know, burning is I'm here in Georgia, South Georgia very common down here where I'm at. Um, but I grew up in Kentucky and it was definitely was not as common, um, there 
as it is here. In fact, pr- pretty pretty rare. And now I did I worked for Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, and we were just kind of starting to dip our our toes into burning there um, before I left. But uh, wh- why is that? I guess why is it more of a southern thing? I mean, you did you touched on how it's it's a natural occurrence here in the South, but are there benefits? You know, in the the Midwest and and North as well. Oh, absolutely. There's absolutely benefits in the Midwest and the North. Um, I think a lot of the reason is just culture. You know, we're culturally, societally, whatever. In the Deep South, we see a lot more fire. Um, It's very common for either site prep or mid-rotation management in pines. And, you know, being in the pine belt here, we just see it a lot more. But that that is not to say at all that fire was not a historical part of the landscape in the Midwest or going north into Appalachia. Like I was doing some digging a few weeks ago into the Appalachian fire history, and there have been some really cool studies that have synthesized, you know, uh, 30 plus study sites all across Appalachia looking at fire history. And if you look at the average fire return interval for Appalachia, and this spans from, you know, North Georgia to up into Pennsylvania, New York, and there's a lot of variation across that range, but the average fire return interval for Appalachia was seven years, historically. And this is not, you know, modern day prescribed fires. This is talking about Native Americans and lightning strikes, which, you know, that to me, I was like, you know, I knew that fire was burning across Appalachia fairly frequently, but I mean, seven years, that's kind of, I mean, that kind of puts it in perspective, you know, I mean, fire is a really critical part of that landscape too. Now, most of those fires were occurring in the dormant season. Like you think about a, you know, a chestnut oak on a rocky ridge, it drops all of its leaves in, you know, October, November, and those leaves are just, they curl up and they create really fluffy fuel beds. So, Anytime from then until the end of the dormant season, I mean, those conditions are primed and ready to go for a fire. But there are also study sites that they burned primarily in the early growing season. So, you know, the April, May, June time frame. So, you know, there's those landscapes, Appalachia, the Midwest. I mean, they're, you know, they've got a history with fire, too. It might not be quite as frequent as you'd see in the deep south where we've got a lot of, you know, short leaf and long leaf and loblolly, et cetera. But they're, uh, they, you can certainly use fire to manage plant communities and associated wildlife populations in Appalachia or the Midwest, just like you can in the Southeast. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I guess that, that burning time, the, the window of time to burn. And I know again, you know, from working with the, the Georgia DNR down here, we would typically start burning on our, our WMAs, you know, around December and finish up, you know, mid-March uh, around turkey season, just before turkey season. And that seemed to be pretty standard for what you'd see in the area that, that you know, really January, February time frame was where a, a lot of the burning seemed to be focused. And, you know, I know we're going to dive into some benefits of, of growing season burns, but but why have most burns, I guess, traditionally been conducted in that that winter time frame? Well, I think one of the reasons is just because that's what we've always done, you know, like that's just the history of prescribed fire, very common in the dormant season. And that's what we do. So that's what we do. Um, but the reason that we do it is because that's when it's easiest to burn. 
I mean, the atmospheric conditions this time of year, I mean, like right now, today is a beautiful day to burn. I'm actually going out to burn. I'm going out to cut fire lanes this afternoon and going to burn tomorrow. Um, and right now we've got bluebird skies. The humidity is really low. We just had a cold front roll through and it's just the conditions are perfect. Um, so smoke dispersal is a big one. The atmospheric conditions this time of year, generally you get really good smoke dispersal. So your smoke's going to rise straight up and it's going to hit wherever the mixing height is hundreds, thousands of feet above the ground. And then it's going to mix into the atmosphere. Now, when you burn in the growing season, the atmospheric conditions generally aren't quite as good. And, you know, you're going to burn and the mixing height might not be as high and the smoke's going to, you know, dump down on the highway a few hundred yards away or dump down on town. And, you know, generally you just want to avoid that because of the human safety health concerns associated with those things. But so you've got the atmospheric conditions, the smoke dispersal. We got low relative humidity this time of year many times. Um, and the other big one is fuel conditions. Um, in pine and pine forests, it's not as big of a consideration. Um, but in hardwood forests, it's a huge consideration. In the dormant season, obviously, there's no leaves on the trees. And the sunlight can penetrate to the forest floor, dry out the fuel, and create a really good fuel bed to carry a fire. Whereas in the growing season, that's, you know, it's closed canopy. Um, the leaves are soaking up all of the sunlight's energy and it's not getting down to the forest floor to dry out the fuel. So the fuel stays, you know, pretty moist and just doesn't dry out as well and ultimately won't carry a fire as well. Um, now, we have a big advantage here in the deep south of having a lot of pines. And, you know, if the, if the relative humidity is right, I mean, you can burn oftentimes a day or two after rain just because pine straw carries a fire so well yeah and what what kind of results i guess should, would would you expect to see from from burning this time of year i mean what what are the benefits to uh, to a dormant season fire well i want to preface i guess this whole conversation we're going to talk a lot about growing season fire like you mentioned and i want to preface this whole conversation with there is nothing wrong with burning in the dormant season that's traditionally what we've done, and it gets you great results. It really does. But when you have, you know, management objectives that are more nuanced, you can use fire to help you, fire timing, you can use fire timing or seasonality to help you better meet some objectives by burning it one time a year versus the other. But in general, burning in the dormant season um, it's going to get you a lot of the same results as burning at any other time of year. It's going to, you know, remove the leaf litter or the, the duff layer on the ground. It's going to expose soil. It's going to increase germination rates in the seed bank. It's going to help to scarify seed. You're going to get a good flush of understory plants. As long as the midstory um, is still within the reach of fire, and that's something we can talk about later, but, you know, generally if your midstory is one to you know less than two and a half or three inches dbh you can depend and there's a lot of caveats here but you can usually top kill that mid-story plant and cause it to re-sprout from the root collar burning in the dormant season you're going to have really really high re-sprouting rates um whereas if you burn later in the year in the growing season you're going to have a better chance of killing that tree and it won't re-sprout 
So, um, but dormant season fires, you know, that you get good forb response. You get, um, especially when you burn later in the dormant season, a lot of our data and other projects have shown that as you burn later into the dormant season and in the earlier parts of the growing season, you're going to have more grasses that respond. So, you know, for uh, from a deer management perspective, grasses, I would say never, but it's almost never limiting on the landscape. So we generally don't want more grasses unless we want help carrying a fire, right? Grasses are really good at carrying a fire. So I guess that was a long way around that, but I guess in summary, I would say that dormant season burns are going to give you a good herbaceous response in the understory, but they're also going to give you really good um, re-sprouting rates out of your plants that re-sprout. So that's everything from your, you know, uh, trees to your shrubs, brambles, vines, anything that can re-sprout from the root collar is probably going to do it after a dormant season burn. Now, that may not be a bad thing. If you're interested in promoting really good cover, like a thick, a woody thicket where there's really high stem density, really good visual screening cover, horizontal structure where a deer can get in there and you can't see it bedded down, you know, 20 feet away, then a dormant season burn is going to give you, you know, really good results with that because those woody plants are going to be there, you know, in the growing season and those stems are going to stay there in the dormant season and continue to provide really good cover. Gotcha. Now. <clears throat> is there any benefit to burning through a closed canopy forest? Like, for instance, here on my property, I have some uh, 10 to 15 year old pines, just thick as can be. Uh, is there any benefit to running a fire through that? Or do you have to, do you have to have that sunlight getting, getting down there to the forest floor to really provide any benefit from prescribed fire? Yeah, you really need to have sunlight on the ground to get a benefit. Um, you'll see, you might, you'll see a, a minute bump in deer forage production and understory growth. If you burn in a closed canopy forest, like some of the stuff will re-sprout and you'll have a little bit more biomass or you might top kill a mid-story tree here or there and you'll have a little bit of deer food on the ground, but that's going to be very ephemeral. That, that, benefit that's minimal to start with is going to go away very quickly unless you have more sunlight on the ground um so you know you can certainly if you want to just to make yourself feel good you can go do it but just don't just don't expect you know great results from it right right Re really needs to be used in conjunction with some type of, of thinning activity where you can get the the, the benefit of both i guess the best of both worlds absolutely sunlight drives everything that we're talking about like that's the catalyst to all of these vegetation responses primarily and then secondarily the wildlife responses if there's not sunlight on the ground that can you know uh feed a new little ragweed seedling that just germinated then it's not going to do any good right well let's let's take a look now at kind of burning outside of that that traditional winter time frame um and but before we do now, the information that you're providing here is actually based on research that you were involved with through Mississippi State University, correct? Yep, that's correct. We might talk about some other stuff that you know we've done on the here in the Deer Lab. Like Rainer Nichols um, was a graduate student who's my predecessor here, and some of my research is a follow up on his project, and he's got some really cool results that we can talk about too. Okay, can can you talk a little bit about? That research as far as, you know, what 
I guess going in, what kind of questions were were you guys trying to answer, and and how was the project kind of laid out? Yep, absolutely. So, <clears throat> Rainer's project was so the the main question with Rainer's project was thinking about historical lightning season fire versus modern day prescribed fire, right? So historical lightning season fire that was occurring in the May, June, July timeframe, whereas modern day prescribed fires are occurring in the February, March, April timeframe. So, you know, that's about a three or four month shift in fire timing from midsummer to late winter or early spring. And that may or may not seem like a big deal, but one of um, the main questions driving this project was how much does that matter to deer? Because, you know, up in, you know, most of the country, fawns are hitting the ground in, you know, May or early June. But here in the Deep South, fawns are often hitting the ground in late June, July, even sometimes in August. So the physiological reproductive requirements of a gestating doe in her third trimester of gestation going into lactation, raising a fawn, very different in the deep south versus, you know, in other parts of the country. So when we burn in the dormant season in the deep south, that, you know, flush of vegetation after the fire, that corresponds very well with spring greenup, right? But spring greenup isn't a nutritional stress period for deer. It's the springtime when their physiological needs, their nutritional needs are relatively low and because it's spring green up forage quality in the landscape is relatively high you know the i guess I should clarify here that the highest quality parts of a plant are the new growth so when it's spring green up that is all new growth and the landscape is full of relatively high quality plants but when you get into the mid to late summer months that nutritional quality in the plants starts to drop pretty rapidly. You know, plants are beginning to senesce. The annual plants are beginning to senesce, which means they're just starting to devote more energy to reproduction and they're starting to maybe go dormant later in the summer. That's compounded by, you know, heat and drought. The plants are nutritionally stressed because it might not have rained in a while and it's really hot. So we see this, what we've kind of termed a seasonal mismatch between uh, forage nutrition and deer requirements by the time you get to mid to late summer. Mid to late summer, that's when deer new deer requirements are extremely high in the deep south. You know, a, a lactating doe with twin fawns, her nutritional requirements are about five times of what her body baseline body maintenance requirements are. So she's, you know, she needs a lot of really high quality food. But at the same time, when with when you're burning in the dormant season or not at all forage quality at that time of year is relatively low. So I guess that's a long way of, you know, kind of setting up the introduction to this project, but we wanted to look at whether or not we could use June fire, so the historic lightning season fire that maybe southeastern deer were more adapted to, but we could use that to create a nutritional pulse in mid to late summer to help deer meet their nutritional needs. And so, you know, wouldn't you know it, that's how it works. Um, by mid to late summer, the biomass in a June burn is not near, it's not near what the biomass is in a March burn, which makes sense, right? You burn in March um, at the very onset of spring green up and plants haven't devoted a whole lot of energy to, you know, new growth yet. But you burn in June 
That's after spring greenup has taken place. That's after those plants have already dumped a lot of their energy into new growth. And then you burn in June and you top kill it. Those plants don't have as much energy in their root system to re-sprout. But what you do get is the re-sprouting that does occur. And a lot of re-sprouting still does occur after a June burn. But that re-sprouting occurs at a time when deer need it the most. So you're essentially, with a June burn, able to create a second greenup but it's at the time of year when deer actually really need it. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I guess, uh, how did you, how did you guys lay this out? Was it basically, you know, just create creating blocks and in, in a certain designated area and just burning at, at different times and measuring biomass from there? Or how, how did you, how did you actually set up the project? Yeah, so we had nine um, mid-rotation loblolly stands throughout kind of east-central Mississippi. And each of those nine loblolly stands was split into three treatments. Um, one of the treatments was a control, which we didn't burn just for reference. One of them was a March burn to kind of correspond with the modern-day prescribed fires. And one of them was a June burn to mimic the historical lightning season fire. So we burned those. Um, well, I didn't burn them. I wasn't even here then. But, you know, Rainer and Dr. Lashley was kind of heading up this project along with Dr. Damaris and Dr. Strickland when Dr. Lashley was still here. And um, we burned those stands and then monitored um, three main things throughout the next couple of years. We monitored biomass production. We monitored quality. So we monitored the quantity of plants in the biomass. We monitored the quality of plants through time, and we also monitored deer use with trail cameras. So we already touched on the quality side of things. When you burn in, you know, March, you get that nutritional pulse that overlaps spring green up very heavily. There's a lot of overlap with spring green up. When you burn in June, you get that pulse in mid to late summer when, you know, plants would normally be very low quality. The biomass we kind of touched on too where the um, biomass is greatest in the March burn. Um, but by year two after the fire, the biomass in the June burn has caught right back up to the March burn and is, you know, there's a ton of biomass out there. The one we haven't talked about yet is deer use of those burned areas. You know, if you're burning in, if you're burning in, uh, let's say, let's say you have all of this information at hand that if you burn in June, you're going to have this, really good flush of new vegetation four to six weeks later and it's going to be really high quality and it's going to benefit deer when physiologically they need those nutrients the most well if you do that and the deer are still hanging out in a march burn come you know july or august is that really doing you any good so um that we we measured uh deer use in each of those burn units throughout the course of a year and you know about four to six weeks after the burn deer use peaks and so when you burn in june by you know mid-july or august deer use is peaking in those uh june burns four to five weeks after because they're actually chasing the nutritional pulse that's you know arising from your burn so basically what we see is that by burning at multiple times of year you can create these little pulses of nutritional quality across the landscape and be providing high quality plants whenever deer need them. And with these um, these growing season fires, would they would they still provide a benefit 
to deer in um, you know the Midwest and the North where their their fawning timing is is earlier, or is it you know is it not gonna not gonna provide as much benefit in a more northern climate? Well, there there's there's not as much of a late summer nutritional stress period as you go farther north because the growing seasons aren't as long and there's you know it's not as hot and especially when you get in the Midwest and it's dominated by ag, there's generally a lot of nutrition on the landscape, but it would certainly, the, the same principles would certainly still apply where when you burn, um, four to five weeks after that burn, assuming you're, you know, in somewhere close to the growing season and plants are actively growing four to five weeks after that burn, you're going to get a flush of new, young, high quality vegetation. So yeah, in the Midwest, if you burned in June, by the time you know mid or late July rolls around, um, there's going to be a flush of high quality vegetation on the landscape. Now, by that time of year in the Midwest, we're farther along with antler growth and fawns are you know older, but it's certainly still very beneficial to them. You know, in the in the deep south, by June or by July, a lot of fawns are very young still, maybe just a couple of weeks old. But in the Midwest, they're probably a month or maybe even two months old by that point. Um, but by the time they're two months old, they're starting to rely pretty heavily on uh, vegetation. And they're starting to eat a lot more so that nutritional pulse could really benefit them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, another way to provide some diversity. It's not like you're burning the entire landscape to to reset. I mean, you can, you know you're burning one block and and not another they're kind of getting the the best of of both worlds there absolutely absolutely now how did the response differ between these growing season burns and say a dormant season burn as far as the the types of vegetation it it stimulated or or that responded to it was was there some difference there as well um so that gets it uh, some of the research that I've been working on for my project. So we've done done a couple of projects on the some of the minutia of vegetation response to fire season. And, you know, for some people, that's probably boring all vegetation <laughs> response to fire season. But, I mean, really think about it. Deer are, I mean, and l- most wildlife species are intrinsically tied to plants. Deer eat plants, obviously, they hide in plants. They drop their fawns in plants. They free. They flee from predators in plants. They seek thermal refuge in plants. So you know, a, a in-depth understanding of how plant communities respond to differences in management. In this case, fire is critical to being able to you know manage a deer population well. So, um, I guess, I guess we can start with. Let's start with a mid story. So okay. my um my opinion is that deer don't really care about the mid story, right? The the mid story is generally out of reach of deer. It's not, you know, they they don't they don't care that the mid story's there, they don't care if it's not there, but what they do care about and care about a lot is the understory. And so having a dense hardwood mid story prohibits a well-developed understory. So I guess in that way, deer do care about the mid-story, but indirectly. They just care about the understory, and having a dense hardwood mid-story oftentimes prohibits 
a developed understory, just like having a closed canopy overstory prohibits the understory just because it's intercepting all the sunlight. So one of the things that we've now seen from a couple of our projects is that growing season burns are much more effective at whacking the hardwood midstory than dormant season burns are. So when you burn in the dormant season, like we talked about, you're going to get really high rates of sprouting from the tree's root collar. And essentially what's going on there is if you think about uh, where a tree's energy is in the dormant season, a deciduous tree, so one that's you know dropping its leaves and is dormant in the winter. You know, by the time, you know, late summer to early and mid fall roll around, that tree is starting to pull its energy out of its leaves, out of its above ground biomass and basically store it in the root system because it's dormant. You know, it wants to protect its energy from freezes, from et cetera, et cetera. So when you burn in the dormant season, when that tree is not actively growing, you're basically top killing that tree, but it's sitting on a full tank of gas ready to resprout with all of its energy. So you get really vigorous resprouting. But when you burn in the growing season, and our data indicates specifically in the, you know, earlier part, in the earlier half of the growing season, so the May, June timeframe, you can get really good control of the hardwood midstory. One of the theory, there's a lot of you know different caveats here, and there's a, a lot of disagreement in the fire world about the best time of burn to achieve certain objectives, and we can get into that more. But basically, what our data is suggesting that when you burn in the early growing season, what's likely happening is that you are disconnecting that tree's energy from its root collar where resprouting occurs. So June rolls around, right? And spring green up was you know three months before, but the tree has just dumped a lot of its energy into above ground biomass, new leaves, um, stem elongation. The tree's getting taller. It's getting wider. It's trying to soak up more sunlight. Maybe it's starting to devote some energy into flowering or reproduction. So that tree's gas tank below ground is pretty low at that time of year. So then you go in and burn it and you're essentially top killing that tree, but now it doesn't have much energy to resprout from. So burning in the growing season there's no doubt that burning in the growing season period is a better time of year to burn to control the hardwood midstory than burning in the dormant season. When I say control, I mean totally kill the plant. Top kill is great, right? Because you get good uh, resprouting from the root collar, which many of those resprouts are very good deer forage. But those resprouts are rapidly going to grow up and then begin to shade out what's underneath of them pretty quickly. But burning in the growing season, specifically the May-June time frame, is a great time of year to control the hardwood midstory and open up more growing space in the understory for deer forage plants. Gotcha. Yep. So definitely useful for uh, areas like where I'm at down here where you, you uh, sweet gums can, can, sweet gum trees can quickly kind of take over any kind of area that's getting sunlight to the forest floor. Um, so it sounds like it'd be a great way to to knock those those sweet gum trees back and uh, um, you know do more than just top kill them, actually kill them to the root. So. Yep, absolutely, and that's that's a that's a very um, interesting point that you bring up because in one of our projects that we just wrapped up, 
we looked at a species-specific hardwood mid-story response to fire season. So we were only burning in March and June for this project, but we looked at a couple dozen hardwood mid-story species that we had a lot of data for, and we saw really big differences in response to fire season, depending on which species we're talking about. So sweet gum, for example, we actually saw more sweet gums after dormant season burns than we did after not burning at all. And I'm not talking about just, you know, more sprouts from that one tree's root collar, because a lot of times, you know, you'll burn and you'll get seven or 10 or 20 sprouts arising from that one point where that tree was standing. We saw more individual sweet gum trees popping up across the landscape. Now, what's likely going on there with sweet gum when you burn in the dormant season, you know, they're sitting on a full tank of gas like we talked about. But, you know, sweet gums are what we often call clonal. So they will, you know, reproduce from rootstock very often. If you're ever out in the if you're ever out in the woods and you see a if you get into an area and you see a bunch of sweet gums, a bunch of little ones, look around and I'd be willing to bet there's going to be one big sweet gum. I'm talking, you know, 10, 12, 20 inches somewhere kind of at the center of that sweet gum clump. And a lot of those little sweet gums that you're seeing around there are actually the same tree. They're popping up from that sweet gum's root system. So the theory, well, our our theory is that when you burn sweet gums in the dormant season, you're top killing that central main stem. But its root system is sitting on a full tank of gas, and it sends up a bunch of new little suckers up all over the place, and you actually end up with a greater density of sweet gums on the landscape than when you started. But the June the June time frame, you can reduce um, sweet gum density in about half. You can cut sweet gum in about half when you burn in the growing season or in the June time frame relative to not burning at all. And then we've got trees like um mockernut hickory and green ash are good examples when you burn in the dormant season or you burn in june or not at all you're going to have about the same number of stems out there as you did individual stems out there as you did in the first place uh we got species like wing sumac you burn in the dormant season or the growing season you're going to have about double the number of wing sumac stems as you did when you didn't burn at all We've got species like eastern backers. Uh, if you don't burn, let's say you've got 100 stems per acre, just for simple math, of eastern backers when you don't burn at all. If you burn in the dormant season, you're going to have about 70 stems per acre. So it's going to kill about 30% of them. If you burn in the growing season, you're going to have about 30 stems per acre. So it's going to kill about 70% of them. So basically, we, we documented seven unique fire season rest- response types just on our study areas. Now, there might be some variation, you know, across regions. Like we get, we see one response type here, but you go to a different, you know, soil region or different climate elsewhere, and you might see a different response by that same species. But the the main point here is that we, as, you know, stewards of the resource and as wildlife managers, as plant community habitat managers, we should, if we want to be, if we want to maximize our effectiveness, we should be basing all of our management decisions, especially with fire, on the specific plant community that we're managing. So, you know, in general, growing season burns are going to reduce 
the hardwood mid-story component on a specific property in general. But if you've got a really, if you've got a lot of wing sumac in the mid-story and you burn in June, you're going to have more than if you didn't burn at all. You know, if you've got green ash or mockernut hickory, it doesn't matter if you burn in June or not at all. You're going to have about the same number of stems out there. So, you know, we, we really need to be kind of tailoring our management prescriptions, our fire prescriptions to site-specific plant communities to maximize effectiveness and to have realistic expectations, right? Because if you go in there thinking you're going to whack the hardwood mid-story and make more deer food, but all you've got is green ash, you know, you, you're going to get, like we talked about with burning and closed canopy, you're probably going to get an ephemeral flush of um, understory response, but that's not going to be sustained in the long run because those green ash trees are going to re-sprout and very quickly outshade and outcompete everything that's growing in the understory. So in those cases, you might need a chemical control of the green ash to really control it. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, you really really need to have a good picture of, of what you're dealing with before you start planning the timing of these fires then, obviously. Yep, absolutely. And again, you know, this is all very dependent on, you know, on sunlight. If if you've got a lot of, you know, sweet gum is great at growing where there's, you know, very little growing space. It can grow in full sun. It can grow in virtually in a closed canopy forest. Um, just have realistic expectations, whether it's on what species you have and how they're going to respond to fire or how much sunlight you have. Just have realistic expectations that if you burn, it's going to depend on primarily how much sunlight is there. And it's also going to depend on what the plant community is like on that property so just don't you know go into it if you're just getting started with fire don't go into it thinking that you burn one time and you're going to have you know just these out of this world results and you're going to have 160s running around everywhere i mean it's it's very very context dependent everything with fire is and because there are so many nuances to this stuff like burning in the early growing season versus the late growing season to maximize mid-story mortality you know some studies suggest that most of the published studies in the literature that have looked at early, uh, the early half of the growing season, so the you know May June time frame, find that that is the best time of year to burn to control the hardwood midstory. That's what our data indicates. But you know, if you get a really high intensity fire in the late growing season, and when you burn in the earlier part of the growing season, May June, if you're you know, getting a lower intensity fire, you might get better control in the late growing season. So it's, I guess my, you know, my recommendation to people who are, you know, developing fire plans for their property is go into it with the, you know, the full realization that all of this is very context dependent. That's number one, sunlight, plant community, et cetera, et cetera. But um, number two is just do some experiment. You know, I mean, there's a lot of nuances here and it varies by species composition and it varies by soil potentially and it varies by blah, 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 blah. So, you know, you can go out on your property. If you've got a 10 acre burn block, split it up into, you know, four, three or four or five, whatever different treatments and burn at different times a year and see what the plant community on your property is doing. Because with all these nuances, you know, different plant species respond in different ways to different fire seasons and the plant community across just the Southeast varies quite drastically. You can get very different, you know, groups of species from Mississippi to the, you know, mountains in North Georgia. 
So, you know, just do some experiment and see what works best on your property. See what gives you the best results and do more of that. There you go. Now, is there any, any evidence that burning during the growing season, are you more likely to damage mature trees, mature hardwoods? Mm. Mm. That's a very good question. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, you are more likely to. And that gets it. So when we were talking earlier about, you know, where a tree's energy is and whether or not it's sitting on a full gas tank ready to resprout, that's what we refer to in the, you know, fire science world as the seasonal carbohydrate hypothesis. So where are a tree's carbohydrates at what time of year? So what you're referring to here, it deals with that some, but this is what we call the ambient temperature hypothesis. So when you burn in the growing season, let's say you burn in, you know, June versus in February or March, you know, in, in the Southeast, you burn in June, it's liable to be 90, a hundred degrees outside. Okay. Whereas if you burn in February, or March, it might be, you know, 40, 50, 60 degrees. So you're, you're probably going to have a 30 to 50 degree difference in temperature, depending on just the ambient air temperature, depending on what time of year you burn. So in, in general, trees, tree tissue, just living tissue in general, dies at about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So when you burn in February, okay, and it's 50 degrees outside, you need to raise that tissue temperature 90 degrees, okay, to get that tissue to die. And generally, we're going to be talking about, you know, the leaf tissue, crown scorch, or the tree's cambium. You're going to need to raise that temperature 90 degrees to get it to die if you're burning in March. But if you're burning in June and it's 100 degrees outside, well, now you'd have to raise it less than half of what you did burning in March. Now you only have to raise it 40 degrees if it's 100 degrees outside. So it takes a lot less energy from the fire to raise that tree's cambial temperature or leaf temperature or whatever to that lethal threshold when you burn in the growing season. So, you know, if you're burning in, um, a relatively closed canopy. It doesn't even have to be closed canopy. If you're just burning with overstory pine trees and you got a lot of convective heat rising up into the trees canopy um, in the June time frame, and it's 100 degrees outside, you're likely going to scorch those overstory trees. Now, if, if you don't care about doing some thermal thinning and killing some over, overstory trees, opening up some more sunlight, you're going to lose some timber value there. But if you don't care about that, then great. But if you want to preserve as much timber value as you can, then the recommendation would be either A, to be as safe as possible, don't burn when it's really hot outside. But B, if you are going to burn when it's hot outside, use really low intensity fire. So use, you know, backing fires that are moving into the wind and going very slowly with short flame lengths. Don't burn when there's a really heavy or there's a really high wind outside don't burn when relative humidity is extremely low like in the you know 20 percent range maybe shoot for more of the 40 to 60 percent range so you can just kind of use you know little things like that to kind of um, moderate your fire intensity moderate your flame lengths and moderate ultimately how much heat is making it up into the canopy of the overstory if that's what you want to protect now that stands in direct contrast to what our objective many times is 
with the mid story. We generally want to get that mid story really, really hot in the growing season to control it. One of the other interesting things that we found through some of our research is that crown scorch is extremely important in determining a tree's response to fire. When you obviously you can't scorch a crown that doesn't exist in the you know February time frame. There there are no leaves there. But when I say crown scorch, I mean uh, a crown scorch of one hundred percent would mean that every single leaf on that tree's crown is browned up and shriveled after that fire. That the crown got scorched. A crown scorch fifty percent would mean you know half the leaves. Blah blah blah. But when you increase the rates of crown scorch, especially in the in the May June time frame for fires, you increase the rate at which those trees will die. We don't see as much of a relationship there in the late growing season. So late growing season, our data indicate that you're going to have between three and ten percent um, mid story tree mortality when you burn in the late growing season. When you burn in the early growing season, the May the May June time frame, um, you can get up to thirty thirty five percent mid-story tree mortality when you get really good crown scorch so you know and what what determines crown scorch well it's it's how tall your flames are it's how intense your fire is um and ultimately all of that depends on the conditions that you're burning under so if our objective is to maximize mid-story crown scorch but we're worried about the overstory then we're kind of in a predicament because to get a really hot fire, to get really good crown scorch on the mid-story, you know, mid-story trees are sometimes 15, 20, 25 feet tall. I mean, that'll be a, that's a, that's kind of, you know, bordering, encroaching into the overstory, a 25 foot tall tree. But, you know, there, there's a little bit of a conflict there. So you got to decide how you want to handle that. Do you want to try to maximize mid-story crown scorch and burn under kind of sketchy conditions? You know what I mean? Um, and risk some damage to your overstory, or do you want to take it low and slow in the mid-story and top kill what you can, the smaller stuff, and then go treat the larger trees with a chainsaw and a bottle of herbicide? Yeah. So just yep, just something else to consider, so especially I guess if if timber value is is your primary concern over over wildlife habitat, and just uh, yep, yep, something to keep in mind for sure. Yep, absolutely. And there's um. Y'all just published a a great article a few weeks ago. I think uh, Dr. Lashley and maybe Jordan Nanny or somebody wrote it on burning in hardwoods and what you're going to get for deer forage production and what you can expect for hardwood mortality. That was a a fantastic article that I think kind of synthesized the science really well on the topic. And one of the takeaways there was, and this is not, like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is practical to do on a thousand acres, but first of all, you shouldn't be burning a thousand acre burn blocks if you're managing here in turkeys anyway. But one of the big takeaways there was don't leave a bunch of slash logs, limbs, branches, stuff that can sit there and smolder piled up at the base of a crop tree. You know, if you got, you know, nice white oaks that you want to potentially harvest in the future for timber value or you got some, you know, whatever, whatever the species is, um, you can go through there if you're burning five or 10 acres and find the trees that you're most concerned about for timber value or mass production or whatever, and just go through there and, you know, kick the limbs out of the way. I mean, that's going to take you, you know, maybe an hour, depending on how big your burn block is. But I mean, it's good for you to get out there anyway and kind of evaluate the conditions, look at what fuels like, make sure that, you know, you're burning and it's going to meet your objectives. 
And that's a that's a huge, pretty simple thing you can do to help minimize the risk of damaging your overstory trees. Yeah. Yeah. I've even seen guys go in, you know, with a leaf blower and, and just blow the the leaf and duff away from the the base of hardwood trees like that to yep, keep from getting fire right up on it. But in you know, in just in most situations, there are certainly situations where this is not the case, but in many situations in the southeastern US, we have too many overstory trees. So if now again you gotta balance timber production versus, you know, deer habitat here. But if if you're not really concerned about, you know, timber production in the future, and a lot of landowners are, but a lot of landowners aren't then you shouldn't be too worried about killing some of your overstory trees. You don't want to get a crown fire running through there. You know what I mean? Because then right. you got some other issues at hand. But, you know, if you kill a if you kill a overstory tree here and there, especially if it's a low value tree like a, you know, a red maple or a winged elm or a sweet gum, you know, like you're just going to have more sunlight on the ground. There's going to be better deer forage and cover response in the understory. So I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Right. Yeah, I've, I've been doing some FSI work here on my, you know, I just have 15 acres. I don't have enough. I'm not worried about timber production because I don't have a big enough block to worry about, you know, any kind of timber harvest to begin with. And my focus is on, you know, habitat. And so, yeah, I, I've been girdling and spraying some some white oaks and red oaks that some people, you know, they would just have have, have a heart attack over. But you know, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. So, yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, you gotta gotta get that sunlight to the ground. So, yeah. Um, you mentioned there, you know, you shouldn't be burning a thousand acre blocks to begin with if you're if you're managing for for deer and wildlife. What what is a good size burn block? I guess, or you know, how what percent is it a percentage? You know, of your property, you might want to try to burn every year, or you know, what's any any kind of rule of thumb there? I guess. <laughs> Well, in terms on percentage that you'd want to burn every year, um, that that's really going to depend on how many times of year that you're burning and what your fire return interval is. If you want to, just for very, very simple math, I guess, if you're burning at three times a year, let's say you're burning in the in the dormant season, you're burning in the May June time frame to whack some hardwood mid story. And you're burning in the September, October timeframe. So three times a year. And let's just assume that you want to burn equal proportions every year. And you want to put it on a three-year fire return interval. Okay. Then by that, by those uh, numbers, you should be burning one-ninth of your property every year. That way you've got, you know, the rest of your the other uh, the rest of your property or one-ninth of your property during every season, excuse me. You want to burn one-ninth of your property during every season, every year. And over the course of a year, you're going to be burning one-third of your property. And the next year, you burn another third. The next year, you burn the other third. And then that way, by the time you're getting back to the first third you burned, it's been three years since you burned it. So but um, so I guess that's how much of your property you'd want to be burning every year. And that's totally, totally dependent on what your objectives are. If you're cover limited, if you're food limited, I mean, that's, you know, you just got to go out and evaluate the the status of your property in terms of deer habitat. Um, if you're really limited on cover, you're probably going to have a longer fire return interval. 
and you might want to be burning more in the dormant season to get really good woody resprouting and create good structure. If you're really limited on food, then you're going to want to shift probably more towards a late growing season time frame because late growing season fires are really good at promoting forb coverage. Early growing season burns promote some forb coverage too, but not quite as well as the late growing season fires. And that's that's what our data suggests. And the literature is pretty pretty much in agreement on that point. Early growing season fires are going to promote some more grasses, whereas late growing season fires are going to promote some more forbs. So, um, yeah, that, I don't know if that answered your question at all there, but I would just say no, it's, no, it's very, know, very context dependent. Right, right. Yeah, there's no, certainly you can't give a one prescription fits all uh, answer to that. Yeah, I completely understand. I, mean, I think the, the take home there is, you know, you don't want to go out there and, and burn everything off every year. You don't want to burn everything off in one year, um, I, I guess, unless you're dealing with a very small block to begin with. But, um, you know, it's all about breaking it up and, and creating that diversity. Yeah, I guess I guess is a very general. I'm just talking off the top of my head here, so don't anybody quote me on this. But I guess as a very uh, general rule, I would I would say if you're burning blocks in the ten to thirty acre range, that's pretty good size for for deer. I mean, you want it to be big enough that you're going to be able to hold deer, but you don't want it to be you know so big that the that they don't need to go into the middle of it, I guess. You know what I mean? Like right. if they can get everything they need on the edges, then how much value is it to have a bunch of high quality stuff in the middle if they're not even using it? So then kind of shrink it down a little bit. But basically you just want them to have access. Ultimately, this is what it all comes down to. You want them to have access to everything they need at any one point in time. So if that's food, you're going to shift your fire timing later in the growing season. If it's cover, you might burn more in the dormant season with, longer fire return intervals, et cetera. Right. Any, I guess, any considerations when you're burning in the growing season as far as, I guess, the the technique and, and the actual the actual conducting of the burn, I guess, is there, does it change or is it pretty much the, the same from a dormant season fire to a growing season fire? Well, um, one of the projects that, we just wrapped up was looking at kind of the interaction between firing technique and fire season. So the, the two main types of fire types of firing technique that we use in the deer woods are backing fires and heading fires. Now we use flanking fires and sometimes ring fires and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, the two main ones are backing fires and heading fires. Backing fires are moving into the wind very slowly, and the heading fires are moving with the wind. They generally have longer flame lengths. They're generally moving much faster. Um, and so we looked at each of those two firing techniques, backing fires and heading fires, in each of three fire seasons. The dormant season, which was February, um, May-June time frame, so kind of that early to mid-growing season, and then September-October late-growing season. Um, and we kind of wanted to evaluate if we could use firing technique to compound the effects of fire season. So it's already fairly clear from the literature that that May-June time frame is a great time of year to burn to whack the hardwood mid-story. But one of our questions was, could we use a heading fire in the May-June time frame to get better control of the mid-story than if we used a backing fire in the May-June time frame? And so we monitored 
fire temperature with temperature probes. We monitored residence time, which is, you know, the amount of time that any individual point is exposed to open flame. We measured flame length, rate of spread, all sorts of things. And at the end of the day, this is what this is what it comes down to. Um, backing fires result in longer residence time. Heading fires probably result in greater absolute fire temperature, but there does not appear to be a big difference in the the temperature that a tree or a temperature probe experiences between a backing fire and a heading fire. So, hmm. which is very surprising, right? When you're in the yeah. woods burning, I mean, backing fires, I mean, you can stand right next to them, but a heading fire, you might be, depending on how big the heading fire is, you might be, you know, 15 or 20 yards away and you're still too close. But I think what it, what that comes down to, and this is the way that I, you know, rationalize this, there could, there's probably some other things going on here, but I think one of the main drivers of similar temperatures between backing fires and heading fires is the ability of that fire to transfer its energy to another material. So, um, if you look at an infrared image of a fire of a, of a, of a prescribed fire, it's very clear that the taller, the flame length, the hotter the fire is. You might be 1500, 2000 plus degrees in that, you know, ripping head fire, but you know, where the fire is already burned and the fire is just kind of meandering around, you're going to be in the, you know, thousand, 1200 degree range. So head fires are certainly absolutely I'm talking absolute versus relative, absolutely hotter than backing fires. But that infrared image is giving you a snapshot of the actual temperature of that flame. But that doesn't necessarily represent what a tree is experiencing because it takes time for the energy from that flame to transfer into the bark of that tree and raise its temperature to that 140 degrees like we talked about earlier. Um, one of the analogies I like to use for this is a candle, right? If you've got a candle with you know a, a three-quarter or one-inch flame, you can pass your fingers through it very quickly and not get burned, right? You can you can do that repeatedly and not get burned. But if you leave your hand on top of that candle for one, two seconds, I mean, you're going to have a third degree burn on your hand. And the difference there is the time that you're allowing that flame to transfer its energy into your skin. Prescribed fires are very erratic. You know, the flames are bouncing around, they're licking all over the place, they're jumping, they're dancing. So, even though it looks like the fire is just roasting that tree right there, the flames are actually kind of dancing around all over the place and they're not necessarily staying on that tree or the temperature probe or whatever long enough to get a significant difference between backing fires and heading fires. Now, where we do see a difference is, like I mentioned earlier, is with crown scorch. If you can get better crown scorch, you're going to be able to get better control of the mid-story tree. And that's, you know, our project found that many other projects from all across the country, whether it's the southeast or the Pacific Northwest, have found that increasing rates of crown scorch mean increasing rates of tree mortality. Now, just the, we didn't see a significant difference in crown scorch between backing fires and heading fires, which is kind of surprising because you'd think a heading fire, you know, with our flames, we're in the three to four to five foot range. You'd think you'd see way more crown scorch just because there's a lot more flame putting off more radiative heat. You'd think you'd see more crown scorch with a heading fire than a backing fire. But I think there's a couple keys here. One is that we were burning under moderate burning conditions. 
fuel loading wasn't super high, fuel moisture wasn't super low, wind speed wasn't really high, we weren't burning in a drought, et cetera, et cetera. So we're burning under moderate conditions. If you burned under more extreme conditions, you know, and you got really ripping head fires, the kind of, you know, the kind of head fires that make you pucker up a little bit, I certainly w- believe that you would get greater crown scorch of your mid-story trees with a heading fire than with a backing fire. And you get better control with of the mid-story with a heading fire than a backing fire. Um, but we did not see a difference in tree response, whether it's top kill or total tree mortality, um, if you were burning with a backing fire or heading fire. Similar rates of top kill and mortality. Um, so I think there's the you know conditions that we're burning under is a factor there. If we burned under more extreme conditions, we get better crown scorch and we get better control of the mid-story. The other thing there is we were burning in stands that the mid-story was pretty, it was relatively small mid-story trees. Like there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, six-inch mid-story trees that were 20 feet tall. A lot of the mid-story was, you know, one to two inches, even smaller than an inch, sometimes the size of your pinky. So those trees are all pretty small. The crowns are all pretty low to the ground. So we got actually a really good crown scorch with just our backing fires. You know what I mean? They weren't putting off near as much uh, heat as the heading fires were, but they were putting off enough to get good crown scorch on the mid-story. So, you know, I guess I say all that to say that if you burned under more extreme conditions, if you burned where your mid-story trees were bigger, you know, heading fires would very likely give you better control of the mid-story than backing fires would. But if you were burning under moderate burning conditions, like, you know, you're everything's safe. There's there's relatively low risk of the fire escaping, relatively low risk of, you know, the fire chunking an ember over the fire break, relatively low risk of the fire creeping up into the mid-story or the overstory and getting a crown fire. Then backing fires are going to give you just as good a control of the hardwood mid-story as heading fires will. The only advantage you have with burning with a head fire is getting done quicker. You know, like you just, your rate of spread is six times faster with a heading fire than a backing fire is. So you're just going to get to get home sooner, but you're not going to get that much better control of the hardwood mid story with a head fire versus a backing fire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you might get home sooner if, if you don't throw an ember over under the neighbor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll take those backing fires, especially like you said there, if you're going to get equal results. Um, yeah. I'll take the backing fire every time. Uh, another no, another oh go ahead no no i, I was just gonna say I, I, that does make sense to me though like you said even though that that head fires you know burning hotter that backing fire stays around that that individual tree so much longer you know it's moving so yes. much slower and yeah so that i mean it makes sense yep exactly and one of the other um one of my favorite takeaways from this project is the relationship between dbh diameter at breast height and mid-story tree top kill so you know if one of our objectives is controlling the hardwood mid-story with fire i mean fire is i mean by and large the most economical effective way to manage plant communities i mean how much does a gallon of drip torch fuel cost i mean you know that's actually not that bad right now you know what i mean i mean you can fill up a drip drip torch for under ten dollars um well, maybe 15, but just depends on, you know, whatever. But um, when our objective is to 
be able to control the hardwood mid-story with fire. We don't want to allow the mid-story to grow big enough that it's basically resilient to fire. When you get above three or four inches DBH, it's it's it can be pretty hard to, you know, top kill that mid-story tree with fire unless you're burning under, you know, crazy conditions and you're using head fires with you know, 10 or 15 foot flame lengths, then you can probably top kill that tree, but you're also going to probably top kill some of the, or totally kill some of the overstory, more risk of fire escape, etc. So one of the things we looked at is, you know, what, what is the size of mid story tree that basically we don't want to let the mid story get past that point or else it gets harder to control. So when we have, a uh, about a one inch DBH mid-story tree, we've got around a 75% chance of top killing that tree. When you have a one and a quarter to one and a half inch mid-story tree, it drops to about 50% chance of top kill. When you get above two inches, you're below 25% chance of top kill under moderate burning conditions. So what does that mean? It's not to say that you can't top kill or totally kill trees that are larger than an inch because you certainly can but if your objective is keeping the mid-story at bay being able to control and manage the plant community with almost exclusively fire then you should be burning as often as you need to to keep the mid-story below that you know one to one and a quarter inch threshold um anything above that you're gonna you're gonna top kill less trees than you do top kill so and then you know then you go another probably two or three years until you burn again and those trees are even bigger and they're harder to top kill so you kind of get caught in this you know snowball effect where if you don't top kill it with your burn by the next time there's enough fuel to burn and the next time you get into that stand to burn those trees are going to be even harder to kill so i guess all of that points towards fire return interval you know in in much of the southeast to keep the keep your mid-story under that, you know, one to one and a quarter inch DBH range, you're probably going to be burning every two to five years. It's going to depend on how productive the site is, what types of species are growing, how fast they grow, etc. It's just something, you know, another one of those things you just got to go out on your property and monitor how your plant community responds to fire. Um, but just burn as often as you need to to not have to go out there with a backpack sprayer or a chainsaw because you know that takes a heck of a lot more time than oh, yeah. you know running a fire thrown area does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it definitely um just like I said, I I'm originally from Kentucky, moved to Georgia, but yeah, even even that difference, um, it, it there's a considerable difference in in that uh, you know, how quickly those those saplings can can get out of hand. Yep. Um so it's definitely, you know, gonna vary based on on what part of the country you're in, for sure. Yeah, certainly. But yeah, as uh, Luke, as we kind of wrap things up here, I guess, is any other key pieces of um, growing season burns, I guess, that, that we haven't touched on? Um, hmm. I don't think so. I mean, we've covered most of the, I think we've covered most of the main points here. I guess, you know, my, the management implications is all of this is just to, be be a student of your property you know be a student of nature and get out there and observe and experiment and tinker i mean there are certainly some things that you know we as scientists and biologists can 
say and recommend based on, you know, general trends that we observe in data. Um, but that never, ever should replace you being you as a habitat manager, as a deer manager, being a student of your property. Get out there and observe what's going on. You know, play around with fire timing. If you've got, you know, if, if you've got species that we didn't talk about today or, you know, you've got different objectives or whatever, I mean, use all the things we've been talking about as a starting point and something to inform how you build your management plan. But ultimately, get out there and do some tinkering. I mean, that's to me, that's the fun part of all of this. You know, I mean, be a be a manager and to to really manage, you've got to observe and you've got to learn and you've got to make changes based on things that worked better than you expected and things that worked, you know, didn't meet your expectations at all. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with you. I think that that's the fun part of it to me is just, uh, you know, trying stuff out, seeing what works and and seeing what doesn't. And, you know, you can read articles and listen to podcasts and, and get an idea on, uh, you know, generally how to, how things are done or how to do things. But, you know, every property is different. Your your property has different soils, different plant communities. Um, you know, it, it's going to be different than what the guy writing the article you just read is uh, is dealing with. So, yeah, yeah. like you said, just just experiment and, and have fun with it. There's yep, not absolutely. much you can do on a piece of property to, that's going to have like eternal <laughs> consequences. I mean, um, yeah, and that's one of the it's I feel like that's a blessing and a curse of living and managing in the southeast. You know, we've got growing seasons are so long here and it's such a productive landscape that things plant communities succeed to the next serial stage very quickly. So, I mean. The, the blessing part of that is you've got uh, you've got a lot of tools in your tool belt and you can manage plant communities pretty quickly within you know 10 or 15 years you can manage the landscape and have a lot of different things going on but the curse side of that is you got to be on top of it you know what I mean if you if you let you know if you've got an old field and you're like, it's too wet to burn a few years or you just don't get to it. Or you're like, oh, I'd rather be turkey hunting or, oh, it's almost deer season. I don't want to be doing a late growing season burn. Within three or four years, much of that field is likely going to be out of the reach of fire and you're going to need to do something else to control it. So, you know, you just got to, got to be on top of it. Yep. Yeah. And it's a lot more fun to, to burn off five or 10 acres than it is to have to get out there with a herbicide and a chainsaw or a, a oh my gosh, it or, is. <laughs> oh so yeah yeah you got to stay on top of it but yeah luke man I, I, thanks so much for carving out time again to come back on the show and and talk to us and uh yeah just share share some knowledge with us i've uh, i've enjoyed it and uh yeah i think our listeners will will as well yeah absolutely i'm very glad to be here and thank you very much for inviting me back on yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess for those who are listening that might want to keep up with you and what you're doing, is there a way for them to to do that on social media? Yes, for sure. Um, if you know y'all are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, listen to podcasts, we've got a uh, we've got a social media program that we run here at the Deer Lab, and basically our objective of our social media program is to take all the research that we do that's focused on deer hunting and deer management and deer habitat and make it digestible for the everyday hunter or landowner. 
Um, so, you know, just look up the MSU Deer Lab on any of those platforms. We've also got the Deer University podcast where we, you know, talk about very practical ways to manage deer populations and uh, deer habitat. So just look it up. Yep, absolutely. Big fan, big fan of uh, all your all's content. And we'll definitely put links to all that in the, the show notes there for folks to check out. So beautiful. All right. Well, again, Luke, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for your time. And uh, yeah, hope you have a, a good, good turkey season and, and a good burn season. Yes, sir. You too. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> all right. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Luke Resup. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to, uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.